Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, November 16th, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Uh, so I don't even know where to begin. Uh, not that I want to bore everybody with more inflation talk since we did so much of it yesterday, but we got a retail sales number out this morning, uh, 1.7% increase in retail sales. And I believe it was the, either the AP or the New York times tweet revealing this says, Americans shrug off higher prices, continue to buy goods or something like that. Well, guess what? Inflation's not going anywhere soon because the only way for it to beat inflation is for retail sales to go down as a result of increased prices. That all inflation means, just so people understand, all inflation means is rising prices. That is that is what it means. Now, an inflationary period tends to be a combination of loose money and rising prices, uh, as you know, loose money as as uh, produced by the central bank, by the Fed. But um, in this case, inflation, just as a term, is not is neither a pejorative nor is it a you know it is simply a description that things are going up in price and so if you have an increase in retail sales at a time of rising prices this is an undergirder of inflation uh and it only serves to you know indicate that it's it's not going anywhere cuz people are still buying despite the increase in prices and yeah and your instinct is going to be to spend now because your money is going to be worth less tomorrow which is another reason, by the way, that the housing market has gone so incredibly insane. Think about it this way. So we saw last month that um, inflation was uh, 6.8%, right, over a year before. But you can get a 30-year mortgage at 4%. Therefore, you should get a 30-year mortgage at 4%. That money is free. I mean, the in, the the the, uh, the interest is all but free, or at least, you know... 30 to 40 percent lower than it would be otherwise uh you should take advantage of free money particularly if that money is also tax deductible and so um there is and so on the one hand you get rising house prices because the individual person has an incentive clear incentive to buy now buy now while inflation is high and interest rates are low that gap favors an individual buyer as an aggregate, macroeconomically, it is a contributor to inflation because housing prices then go up because there's more demand for housing. And therefore, inflation, again, isn't going anywhere. This is one of the reasons why this is so fiendish. It is so difficult for these for these inflationary spirals to end because they support every aspect of what you want in the economy. Rising wages, uh, rising housing values, rising Retail sales, all of that, which indicate a strong economy, also indicate an inflationary spiral that feeds on itself, which should be familiar to people because we have seen inflation does exist in in successful economies. Um, so anyway, uh, so just just in case you were uh, the Biden people were hoping that inflation was going to go away and help them in 2022. They just got an indication from the kind of news you would want to see that it isn't going anywhere. Well, and I think Goldman Sachs either yesterday or today did some projections and the very worst, uh, it's going to continue to get worse before it gets better. And the getting better is well past the midterm elections. So, I mean, if you're a Democrat looking at that, you can try to sell the American people on it's going to get better. It's going to get better. But they will be living in the midst of the worst peak of the inflationary projections, at least according to some of the... Thanks. Look again, not to not to you know use use history as a guide too much, but you know, um, in 1992 when Bill Clinton ran on it's the economy, stupid, you may recall, and all of that, and how terrible the economy was. The economy only went into recession at the end of 1991 for a quarter, 
there were three quarters, I believe, of essentially of growth, of economic growth before the 92 election, didn't mean that 1992 wasn't run on the fact that there had been an economic slowdown in 1991. And it was the central issue of 1992, even though the economy had improved. The economy had improved in every way, shape, or form from this, uh, you know, from this trough that it had gone into. So the idea that all you can talk it up, uh, even when you have something to talk up, is belied by the fact that people uh, freak out when the economy goes bad. Kind of forget that that was the same dynamic in 2000, too. There was That's a, right. Pronounced a, a significant downturn after the dot uh, com bubble burst, and the first nine months of George Bush's presidency was dominated by how do you get the economy moving again? And it already, and it already was. <laughs> anyway, it is a very interesting. We find ourselves in a very interesting position here because uh, the media will do whatever they can to make sure that uh, the numbers look as good as they can look. Uh, because they're terrified of a Republican renaissance. And we should talk a little about that in relation to the release of John Carl's book, uh, Betrayal, uh, which came out this morning, uh, has been the subject of numerous news stories over the last couple of weeks. And uh, and I bring this up only to say that the terror of the you know potential Republican renaissance is so great that uh, a review in the New York Times this morning by Jennifer... July, I guess it's pronounced S-Z-A-L-A-I. I've never seen it pronounced in one of their book critics. Is a full-throated attack on Jonathan Carl for saying he had tried for the first four years of the Trump administration to be a fair and balanced and objective reporter and that the events of January 6th uh, forced him into a different position where he recognized that Trump was a threat to our democracy, da 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 Okay. And, like a rational human being. Yeah, right. and 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 she attacked him for his efforts in the book of trying to explain um, uh, calmly why the things that were coming out of the Trump administration were wrong and not truthful. And new. Um, and new. Right. So the headline of the piece is, in another Trump book, a journalist's belated, belated awareness steals the show. Okay, so here is what – here she mentions uh, the, there are several scoops and, you know, there's all this incredible information in it, da-da-da-da-da. Quote, uh, it bo- he, she, quotes, uh, she quotes Carl saying, it boggled my mind that Trump – in his interview with him, seemed to justify the death threats made against his own vice president. And this is what Jennifer Shalai in her review writes. It did? The author's expressions of surprise are so frequent and over the top that they are perhaps the most surprising parts of this book. Betrayal is less insightful about the Trump White House and more revealing of Carl's own gradual, extremely belated awareness that something in the White House might in fact be crazy. Events strike him as wacky, crazy nuts. He delves into the outlandish conspiracy theories, earnestly explaining why each of them is wrong. Yada da da da. But then he recalls how September 10th, 2020 was a turning point for him, and she's attacking him, right? This is a guy who wrote a a book before this one called Front Row at the Trump Show, which is all about how crazy the White House is. But the point is that since the book doesn't do anything except, you know, doesn't, in her view, simply say, Trump is crazy, Trump is evil, Trump is crazy, Trump is evil on every page, though I imagine, I've only read 20 pages of it so far, that the overwhelming impact of the way that he writes the book is to say, uh, Trump did something spectacularly evil that for which no one should ever forgive him. But that's not sufficient unto the day for Jennifer Shalai. So I only bring this up to say that uh, the pressure over the next year to say, do, and write anything uh, that will impede the possibility of a Republican return to power in the House and the Senate, and obviously to impede Trump's uh, return to you know, the Republican nomination or something like that will be justified. It's like the announcement at the end of the Blues Brothers, right? When uh, uh, Frank Oz is on the mic and says excessive violence in pursuit of the Blues Brothers has been approved. I can't Um, tell you how outrageous this is and how 
irritated I am over this. She at no point even intimates, much less alleges, that John Carl behaved unethically, unprofessionally, that he that he in, in any way ex- exercised bad judgment, merely that he wasn't excessively emotional when she was excessively emotional. And this is the parlance of our discourse now, the neurotics who dominate our, our political discourse. You have to validate their emotional state at every turning point or else you're part of the problem. And we encountered this at the end of the Trump era when the conflation between really standard boilerplate lawsuits that a losing campaign files was tantamount to a coup. So when they actually began to execute really egregious efforts to overturn the election through memos, through what have you, documents that have subsequently been been released, we can't go back and have an actual retrospective on that reaction because that reaction was wrong. It was it was excessive. It was undue. It was impertinent. It was wrong. The reaction to the memos and the the efforts by the Trump administration to actually overturn the election was right. You can sound the alarm bells over that one. You can fly every red flag imaginable, but we can't have that rational discussion because that indicts the excessive hyperbolic reaction that these same people had to lawsuits, which are standard, boilerplate, run of the mill. They don't make that distinction. And then we have this excessively hyperbolic discourse where these people are rending garments and waving their arms all around like like excited Muppets, and we don't get to have any sort of a real rational discussion about what the problem is here, which means the problem is just going to continue. It's it, it was really telling, I thought, that in the last paragraph of her review, she's like, the Trump era blew a hole through all kinds of institutional norms and presuppositions, revealing vulnerabilities and blind spots. And what I, by the time I got to that, I'm like, well, it certainly did blow, uh, reveal some blind spots in the media's coverage of, of, of political issues. And I think that's why she's angry as well, not just because her own personal views of Trump weren't validated, but that he's not carrying water for the propaganda on on their side of the aisle about Trump. And it's he's not towing the line. He's saying, as a reporter, here's what I saw. He's trying to be he's trying to be a reporter. He's trying to do his There's job. There's no line. There's no line. It is all completely arbitrary and capricious. It is just whatever their emotional state is at the moment. That is I, not I a line. I, I, I'm not sure I agree with you there because, Abe, it seems to me that all of this is about laying a marker for the future. A lot of these sorts of attacks are uh, shots across the bow to say, this is what we expect of you no matter what your what you think your role is going forward. Your role as an American, as a patriotic American in their view, if you're people like Jennifer Solai and all that, is to prevent the overthrow of our democracy in the form of Trump and Trumpianism. And if you think that you have any other role or that there is any role that is less that is more important for you to play, including following along what you consider are your professional obligations in as a as a person who you know works in a field that you've worked in for thirty years, uh, don't think we're not going to come after you with a two by four. Do what we say. Cross the line. Be a Michelle Cinder. Be somebody who is supposed to be a, an objective reporter, uh, but in fact is not, is now a, an active partisan who reports on things that make Trump look bad and Republicans look bad and and belays or hides stuff that may not really make that point altogether. It's being treated like an emergency situation where you abandon uh, the normal rules, Um we the normal rules are a luxury that we can't afford right now because the the, the threat is too great. And you see um, the uh, journalists of this mindset also attacking fellow, fellow journalists, particularly on Twitter, but elsewhere for uh, sort of uh, plainly reporting things that are potentially detrimental to the Biden administration or to Democrats on uh, on in Congress. Same exact thing. Why are you doing why are you giving us all this bad news uh, about about Pelosi and, and, and the various bills? And stop this. This is bad. Right. Well, there's there's also a marker. I think you're right, John, about laying down markers for future coverage of uh, particularly of Trump. But I think it's also laying down a marker to justify later on. Uh, not just 
not reporting on certain things, but actively suppressing stories that can't get out. I mean, we saw this in in miniature with the Hunter Biden laptop story just before the election. But that kind of it's not just we won't cover the bad news for our side. It's that we will we will be aggressive in in labeling as misinformation or or a Russian campaign or disinformation, uh, anything that the other side actually legitimately uncovers about about Democrats or about you know Biden administration, and that's that, really worrisome. <laughs> that's right. That that that's the worst part about this is is that it 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 bleeds seamlessly into fake news into 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 not getting out real stories into hyping up poorly sourced stories. Um, because it serves the right the right purpose. I mean, look, our the main media story of the last two weeks is obviously the collapse of the Steele dossier and the and the fact that they're now uh, Washington Post, uh, which won a Pulitzer for its coverage of the supposed Trump connection to the Russia, you know, to Russia and the Trump campaign's connection to Russia, has had to amend two or three stories. That's all they've done so far. They haven't, and maybe that's all they they think they can, you know, they can sort of sweat through. Do amending two or three stories at the time to deal with the fact that uh, you know that's not true, and that the entire uh, superstructure allegation that the Trump campaign was being run by Russia and connected to Russia and all of that is not true. There is a way in context to cover this, and I don't want to like toot our own horn, and coverage is not really what we do. We're in a commentary is an analytical, ideological publication. We are not at, obje- you know, it's putatively objective, independent news source. That's not what we are. That's not what we do. That's not our writ. That's not our mission. But Eli Lake's piece, Guilty and Framed, or Framed and Guilty, excuse me, which was our, our, an effort to summarize everything that we know and have known about Trump, the Trump story, the Steele dossier, and everything relating to Trump and Russia, said Trump was framed. The Trump campaign was framed. This was a frame-up. Uh, more is now coming out as a result of the Durham investigation on how the frame-up was done and how conscious, actually, the frame-up was. Uh, or kind of entrapment method or whatever it is, but that Trump and the Trump people were guilty of playing footsie with Russia nonetheless, practically, ideologically, in weird ways, uh, and booster, you know, sort of bolstering Putin's position in the world, uh, sucking up to him uh, and behaving in ways that invited this kind of frame-up. Now, that is a frame in which you can say, Trump did wrong, the media did wrong. But here we are in a world in which the only way you're allowed to say the media did wrong is to say that they weren't hostile enough to Trump. John Carl wasn't hostile enough to Trump. You see this? My friend Maggie Haberman, I've known her for 25 years. So Maggie is on Twitter. Fair fair to say that Trump considers her a hostile reporter. Um, If she tweets something out... That doesn't just say Trump is evil. Something about Christian Trump or whatever the last week. If you look at the responses, hundreds of responses to every tweet, they are, you know, you're just serving Trump's interests. Why don't you go work for Trump? How much did Trump pay you for that? Right? And all of that, again, you think if that if you think that kind of thing isn't there to send a message. I'm not saying that it's a coordinated campaign. But it's there to send a message that the people who are your audience don't like it when you say things that don't simply make them feel good about how they how much they hate Trump or whatever. And um, and uh, Maggie Haberman is powerful enough and resourceful enough and famous enough and works you know at the top of her profession enough that she doesn't have to pay attention to that. For her, that's noise. For an up and coming reporter or somebody who wants to like get get what get a MSNBC contract or get whatever they want to get, it's signal, and the signal is live within these live within these boundaries or you're going to be unpopular. By the way, the the other piece of this is that um, while some of these journalists are flailing around in hysterics, saying you know you you can't say nice things about Trump, you can't say bad things about Biden, you can't. What are they also saying at the very same time? Look how great we are. How great is journalism? Look how important and honest 
and critical journalism is to to American politics and American discourse and how dangerous it is when you have someone in power saying that uh, we are biased and we are crooked. Uh, you know, uh, again, another friend of ours, John- Jonathan Last, uh, over at the Bulwark, uh, I've worked with him, Christine's worked with him, um, uh, had a had a had a piece uh, yesterday defending the media against uh, Andrew Sullivan saying on sixty minutes and writing in writing in his Substack, you know that uh, let's look at all the stories that the media have gotten wrong over the last four years and why therefore there is a crisis of faith in the media and and Jonathan for whatever reason I teased him about this privately like you know like decided he wanted to defend the media and say media are doing a good job not a bad job and all of that uh you know they they're self-correcting and you know it's a it's a it's a business in which the peer review happens after things are published which is not the ideal way to do it but then it's corrected and all of this i mean i think this was a this was not correct. Um, and but the media is an imprecise category. Right. But in any case, right. In any case, what happened all day as a result of this uh, PC run in the bulwark is Jonathan Shade and Nick Confessore and 17 or 18 different, you know, liberal, you know, uh, liberal panjandra like coming out and saying, here, you must read, must read Jonathan last piece about how great the media, you know, how the media are good. It's really annoying how people just keep attacking the media. We're talking about the week in which uh, it has now become clear that due to the media coverage, enormous numbers of people believe that Kyle Rittenhouse in Kenosha, Wisconsin, shot three black people when in fact he shot three white Antifa lunatics. Um, a white guy shooting three white people, and this is this has been covered largely or viewed largely by the public as some kind of race crime, when in fact race did not enter into it except that the riot in question uh, followed, you know, uh, police shooting of a of a guy who was trying to kidnap his his girlfriend and three children. Um, and we talked about this class. last week. What yeah. did the AP categorize this as? It, it labeled Race, this right? story as racial injustice, right. which is wrong in two ways. Right. It is neither racial and has nothing to do with injustice. The conduct of justice is ongoing and by all accounts happening rather smoothly. Anyway, so is that there's, of course, the, as we say, the Durham, the, 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 the Durham indictment um, blowing up the Trump you know, Trump's campaign was was a was a you know was a Russian front story almost you know without question. I mean, I mean, I guess you have to assume that you're innocent until proven guilty. But uh, but the the meat of the fact that the Clinton campaign was retailing information seems uh, you know unquestionable and all of that, and that this is the week that people are going to get hoity to. Now, Jonathan is being counter counterintuitive. And trying to write something, you know, interesting, counterintuitive, but that the mainstream media are going to then defend themselves and talk about how wonderful they are this week of all weeks. Like, maybe, maybe, like, don't do that now. Come back to it later. And can I also add a a frustration for those of us on the conservative side of of you know, writing and journalism, there's always been this response by the sort of powerful uh, mainstream media institutions. And I think we can all, we all have a general sense of what that means. Although I appreciated that Jonathan was trying to kind of poke at the right wing for being too uh, uh, blase about defining their categories. But we're always told, well, if you don't think, if you think we're biased, go build your own thing, go do your own reporting, show that you actually can do this. But when that happens, so think of the Daily Wire actually breaking the story about the the rape at, in a Loudoun County school and breaking being the only news outlet that actually went and interviewed the father who'd been arrested at a school board meeting. Now they got, you know, they they certainly took a tone like commentary. Daily Wire has a has an ideological position, which they're very clear about. And some details of the story, he might not have gotten exactly right. Like, was the kid gender fluid versus transgender? Did they know each other or not? But they broke a major story that was having an impact on on an ongoing uh, electoral campaign. And the response of the mainstream media was, you see, 
they got this detail wrong. And so everything that this about this story must be suspect. It's all disinformation. It's a right wing campaign. Michelle Goldberg wrote a whole column about how this was just right wing fear mongering. So even when conservatives, uh, yeah. Michelle, Michelle, she stories, asked for it. Goldberg. Exactly. She basically she was, a, she was asking it. for it. They'd had a previous Goldberg. relationship. No, it's horrifying. But but the point is that like when can even when conservatives and our, our friends at the Free Beacon have been breaking interesting, really interesting stories about what's going on in academia right now, it's still not enough. So they, if there's one single detail wrong in a conservative story, everything is suspect. Whereas if they have an entire narrative lasting years about the president and Russia, it's like, oh, look away. We've, we've done a nice little correction. It's all fine here. All fine. So that is the, stin- the distinction between this alternative media and this very unwieldy category of mainstream media, right? It's it's sort of like pornography. You know it when you see it. But also, it's the guild. The guild springs into action for its for itself and not for others. In fact, is rather defensive and, and hostile towards the others. And that's that's the distinction between mainstream and not mainstream media. Right. Well, or basically now what we have is a liberal media and a conservative media. I mean, I, I just don't think anymore there's any reason not to say that the Washington Post and the New York Times and CBS and ABC and NBC and MSNBC and NPR and, you know, sort of the, the CNN that these are this is the liberal media and the conservative media, local papers, even local papers. Yeah. But you I'm know, just saying that if we want to know, right. I mean, all of them, yeah. Yeah, you know, shop shop members and people advance up and down the yeah. spectrum with these institutions and not others. And the what's wire it? services, AP. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and what's it? So what's interesting to me is that, uh, you know, so the liberal media, then there's the conservative media and the conservative media is both by nature and by whatever is often self-policing. I say there are many d- d- disagreements and distinctions between uh, voices uh, on the right and people being worried that, you know, Fox is too irresponsible or whatever, but OANN, you know, Emerald Robinson is a crazy person, whatever you want to say. There is very little in the way of guild protection, in part because everybody is is sort of a member of a, uh, here in that sense, is a member of the counterculture. The liberal media is a guild. uh, And it's weird because theoretically they should be competing with each other. They should hate each other. People at the New York Times and the Washington Post should hate each other. When When I worked as an editor at the New York Post, we hated the New York Daily News. Like we didn't just wasn't like we even though people knew whether you know people were married to people at the news but basically we looked at the news it was our competition it was our enemy we hated it we wanted to beat it we loved to hear bad news about the news and its circulation and its editorial confusion we this was an emotion of a in a healthy world of what it's like to be a competitor in a competitive framework and what I see now weirdly enough in the mainstream media is it is a circle the wagons, Everyone, all anybody ever does on social media is say nice things about each other. It's sickening. It's like, it's like, oh, it's like another brilliant piece by my, oh, I just, I'm lost in that. Congratulations on your new job going from the LA Times to the Washington Post, going from the Washington Post to the LA Times. Oh, it's so wonderful. They're so lucky to have you. And And everyone is is brave. I came into. And everyone is brave. So brave. If you worked at Time, you didn't like Newsweek. If you were at Newsweek, you didn't like Time. If you were at the New York Post, you didn't like the New York Daily News. That is what competition does. I assume that if you worked for Ford, you didn't like General Motors. And if you worked for General Motors, you didn't like Ford. That's what competition is. Well, that's, that's what this institution, is not are, That's institutional competition. Which no, is I'm talking about dead. individuals. Individuals yeah. like believe in the mission of the thing that they work for and don't like it when, other, when people who are in competition with them prosper because it might injure their possibilities of getting raises and being central in their world and all that. And all I see here among the people in the profession I've been in in 40 years is a kind of back, constant back scratching back scratching massaging you know mutual masturbation it's not a healthy at- atmosphere to create and run competition now maybe they're not really in competition anymore i don't know maybe that's the nature of the weirdness of the media market now 
Well, there in the industries are compete, you know, within the industry, publications are competing with each other, but that's outsourced to the business side, right? And and I think what you're what you're talking about is this guild mentality. And the idea is we all know who the common enemy is. And so we're all gonna support each other and and in this case, most recently it's Trump, but it's basically ideologically they're totally conformist. And this is why anyone like our friend Barry or you know, anyone who threatens the ideological conformity has to be removed or is forced out well the decline but the decline of institutions affects media too so why would you if you're at the los angeles times go ahead and attack the new york times when you want to work there well that's exactly right personal brand right your brand is all that matters it's not just your brand but also what is going on here is that the media them itself or themselves have become a collective institution to be defended against attack not I work for the New York Times. The New York Times is the best, and the Washington Post stinks. You know what? It stinks, or you know what? They're worthy, or it's like, what if you, you know, you're uh, you're on the Yankees and in the mid fifties, and 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 the Dodgers are the other great team, you know. And so you 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 respect the Dodgers, but you hate the Dodgers, right? I mean, it's not like it's this world in which we're, you know, it's like we're all it's like globalism like we're all in the media together and you know but if you're the book reviewer of the new york times and the chief white house correspondent of abc news doesn't follow the script that you think that he should script don't think you're not going to fire a warning shot across his bow you know john part of what what makes this so unhealthy as you say is that if there's no competition like that um, what you end up with is this sort of collaborative, broad collaborative effort to produce this same ideological white noise, right? So it doesn't matter anymore which outlet you're tuning into or reading. Um, you're going to get the exact same take, the exact same story uh, told in the same way. And you can see how destructive that is, actually, of, of of genuine innovation and news breaking, right? Which is everybody's chasing the same story. Then they accept that, you know, it, I, it's like uh, the fact that there's a giant hole in the coverage of academia that is being filled by the Free Beacon, by the Daily Wire, by, you know, Christopher Rufo, who is, you know, at, at, at writing for City Journal and all of that. That's just like a gigantic, you know, multi, you know, multi hundred billion dollar industry that is being given a pass by the mainstream media rather than investigated and organized and is creating an entirely new market. And because they are all operating and singing from the same hymnal, picking the same villains, right? Covering the same heroes, picking the same villains, following the same script. There is a sameness to what comes out of that that is one of the reasons that you don't know if you're somebody who isn't like reading phys- a physical piece from the New York Times in a paper. You don't know where what you read came from. Do you, here's a perfect example. Uh, the Washington Post uh, has a new story today about the Rittenhouse trial and it, it, the tweet promoting it says, no matter the verdict in the Rittenhouse trial, black residents of Kenosha say justice remains elusive. <laughs> Again, why do you think people think that every that there's a racial element involved? Because the media keeps going with that narrative, insisting, insisting. And what that also means is that they don't hold to account public officials who are actually spreading misinformation. So Cori Bush yesterday was tweeting about how she was shot at when she was in Missouri and somehow trying to link this to the to the Rittenhouse trial. No reporter called her to confirm that. No one said, well, where did, did you report that? What happened? What, what are the details? And I think most of skeptical conservative world uh, online assume she made it up because there, but there will be no due diligence on those kinds of remarks. She's an elected official and she's claiming she was shot at by white racists because there's a trial going on right now where a 17 year old took an AR-15 to Kenosha. It it makes no sense. And yet it, it completes that emotional thing that, that Noah said, it does fulfill that emotional need. Okay. And, emotion, and it's, and it's brushback pitches to get you to sacrifice elementary discretion. Like you can't exercise even the most basic instinctual level of understanding that 
this event is not like that other event. Because if you were to say that out loud, it doesn't validate the emotional state. And again, it's all about the emotional state. If you don't, if you can say the exact same thing and agree with someone on the exact same points, but if you aren't affected in the same way that they are, that becomes a, a, a failure to reinforce their priors and is, and is unacceptable. And, you know, all of it reinforces this, this, huge partisan split in the country because if you take the Cory Bush example for example for if you take the Cory Bush case for example um it might very well be that some independent or conservative uh outlets try to run this story down and try to and you know and try to g- get someone on record and talk grill her or someone associated with her on on where when she who was there when she claims she was shot at what's going on what are the records show what are them and and whatever comes of that, um, a whole sort of universe of uh, conservatives will know that this story was investigated, probably proved false, or, and it it will barely bubble up in the in the mainstream press, and this will be yet another sort of divide, you know, in knowledge, in reality. Can I move from this, you know, that kind of horror, sort of the, this made up horror? to a different example of media sort of like of the madness of the of of the current media and this goes to social media and the people who work at in mainstream media organizations running social media accounts and things like that and how they think stories need to be spun to be of interest in social media so uh yesterday or in the last couple of days uh was the largest single art auction in world history took place as a result of the divorce of the uh, re- uh, real estate mogul Harry Macklow and his wife Linda. They were married for 40 some odd years. I actually went to high school with their daughter and he left her uh, for a you know young chippy. <laughs> and and uh, it's a very, very ugly divorce. And uh, as a result of the divorce, the judge ordered that their art collection be auctioned off. And it was auctioned off. I, I can't remember Sotheby's or Christie. It's Sotheby's, excuse me. Uh, gaining six hundred and seventy-six million dollars. There has never been a single sale of art holdings that has produced such a gain, or you know, a sale. It, 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 it's unprecedented in world history. Okay, uh, pretty astonishing, right? So here is how the and the article by Robin uh, Pogrebin or Pogreman in in the New York Times sort of goes into this and about twenty five paragraphs in it talks about what's in the collection and how this is sort of like yeah, the Maclos are in their eighties or something like that and so it's a collection from you know there's Giacometti's very modern artist quote an art sale this is the New York Times official account quote. An art sale ordered in the divorce of the billionaire Harry Macklow and his wife Linda brought in $676 million. But the absence of artists of color and scarcity of women also symbolized collecting from the past. So the news story here is that a single sale of an art collection brought in $676 million. Women and minorities, hardest hit, John. That is, that is, <laughs> that is what we call news. Right? The single biggest thing that has ever happened in the history of anything just happened. But that's not what's interesting. What's interesting is that the collection, which is of, you know, art of the past and therefore is worth $700 million, does, there aren't a lot of uh, artists of color or women. Now, the article itself has somebody mentioning this 25 paragraphs down. It does not lead the piece, it's not central to the piece. Whoever Whatever 24-year-old, you know, non-binary person uh, runs the New York Times account and, you know, uh, is like, oh, you know what's interesting? This is all boring about the art that they're selling the art. But you know what's interesting is there are just no p- persons of color or, you know, or 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 women uh, in the collection. Which, by the way, isn't true. There are. It's just there aren't that many of them. Because guess what? There weren't that many of them. Yes, and you can then say that's about the art world. What does it matter? That's not the news. The news is there was a sale, court-mandated sale and a divorce that netted $676 million in one day or whatever it was. I don't even know how, I mean, you know. 
so that's the other part of the media is that they is is this thing where uh, the mainstream media now employs people who look in the wrong end of the telescope when they're trying to explain the world to people. Which is, you know what, the thing, the giant thing there, that's not what's it. There's the, let's make, let's take the thing that looks like an ant and make it into an elephant because that's all I care about. I'm not interested in the big object. Is that, does that make any sense? Yeah, it's just enraging. Okay, anyway, uh, let's talk about uh, the upcoming holiday season and the great gifts that you can get for your friends and family from Bowl and Branch. Uh, Bowling Branch has a sale through, I think, tomorrow, uh, 20% off on their buttery, lightweight, 100% organic cotton weave sheets that feel incredible in all seasons. They also have throws, they have blankets, they have pillows, and they never disappoint with their high quality. The gift everyone wants is a better night's sleep, so how better to provide the gift that they want the most than to make it as comfortable and exquisitely attractive as possible. Plus, their holiday packaging makes your gift look and feel special. Husband and wife, Team Scott and Missy Tannen, founded Bowen Branch to create a new standard in bedding by doing things the right way, not the easy way. Bowen Branch holds themselves to high standards across the board from sourcing pure organic cotton to putting workers' rights first. And it's not just their sheets that are made the right way. Their pillows, bath towels, and robes are too. Signature hem sheets are their all-time bestseller. They're beloved for so many reasons, like how they get softer with every wash. So treat yourself and your loved ones to the new standard in bedding from Bowling Branch. Their gifts come wrapped and ready in special holiday packaging. Uh, Noah, we know you got pewter sheets. We know that they fit the mattress well, right? We know that's what you've been telling us. All of that being the case, would you recommend that people buy these sheets, pillows, throws to others, for others, for Christmas? I would. First, let me say that it's unfair to you to make me come up with a new testimonial every time we do this. I'm going to repeat my my talking points. However, you remind me that there is a new one. We put those sheets on a week ago, and um, my wife is committed to taking them right off the bed, washing them, putting them right back on, because those are the sheets we like now. They are buttery, as you described. They're so buttery, you're going to feel like a fried egg once you get up in the morning. They fit the thing. They look perfect. They have a high thread count. They're extremely comfortable. I can't praise these sheets enough. They are my favorite sheets, and they're going right back on the bed once they get washed. Okay, so like I said, get 20% off your order through uh, – hold on. Let me check the day again. Through tomorrow, through Wednesday, eleven seventeen, with promo code commentary at Bowl and Branch. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, promo code commentary. See site for details. Exclusions may apply. Okay, let's talk about Yale Law School. Don't go to Yale Law School. Are you crazy? Don't go to Yale Law School. The place is a hellhole, a monster pit, a sucker of life and joy, and it teaches nonsense, and now it is going after everybody and anybody who doesn't think exactly the way its administrators think they should. Anybody want to fill everybody in on? So we have like two or three different stories now. Okay, we have we have the uh, we have the story of the uh, kid, uh, the student who wanted to have a party, and the party was deemed unwoke. The invite, and, excuse the me, the invite to the party was deemed unwoke, and diversity officer, um, the diversity officer whose name I need to pull up somewhere. Hold on. Uh, uh, Yasin Eldik uh, basically uh, went after this kid's jugular and tried to destroy him. And try and uh, yeah, Yasin Eldik, I looked him up. is thirty years old. is not himself a law student. Uh, is just the diversity officer of Yale Law School. Well, he tried to force him to apologize for something right. he didn't need to apologize for. Right. Uh, kid himself, a person of Which color. Which was, we should say, the use of the fr- of the term trap house. Yes, Trap House, which uh, a term that we only know really from a far left wing podcast called Chapo Trap House. It's the first time I ever heard the term. So I still remain unclear to me why that is a 
What, from, the, it, from the famous dirtbag left. So I don't, anyway. But it's not like the administrators made this up. They received nine discrimination and harassment complaints within the first 12 hours of this admi- of this invitation being sent out from ostensibly the uh, people who were getting the invitation. Or did they? Because that's the other question well, here is whether yeah. or not some of that was ginned up by some of these people. That's actually part of the part of these other cascading stories, which right. is that um, the two other stories which involve uh, uh, the Professor Amy Chua, best known as the author of Being the Tiger Mom, uh, and her husband, the novelist and law professor. She is also a law professor at Yale, Jed Rubenfeld. Um, he is accused of being handsy or salacious with his students. She's accused of telling students they need to dress nicely when they go for their job interviews. Uh, both of them have been uh, firmly disciplined in Chua's case. Um, she literally made an agreement with them that she would not socialize with her students after after school hours or like have them over to drinks. And then apparently she has now been under some star chamber investigation because she had some students over to her house for drinks. She did, apparently, which was documented in a 20-page dossier, described as a dossier, in this latest allegation, which spends most of the time talking about the dossier and how Amy Chua had had uh, violated some ethics terms here that are not defined, not clear, and are sort of subjective based on Yale's own account in the Yale News, which I'm reading right now. But the account isn't about her, this professor, or her habits off campus. It is about an alleged allegation made by two Yale law students who claim that the administration was trying to get them to sign their names to a denunciation of this professor, lest they suffer professional consequences. They said that they were being blackballed from the job market. Now, I don't know anything about this lawsuit. Nobody does. But this write-up in Yale News is all about how these students are horrible people. That no, forget that. Let's not talk. I don't want to talk about the Yale Daily News write-up. It's by a first-year student from Yale, and the first-year student from Yale is 18 years old, and that's not of interest. What's and of interest a is for the administration, and this is what the administration wants you to know, no. that everybody's horrible except for Yale administrators. Right. No, but here's the thing. The reason I want to really talk about this is that here's the case. The case is they've sued Yale claiming – that they were told the two students who were threatened students who are not named who are who remain anonymous and that's an interesting thing also they're suing yale on the grounds that they were told that if they did not issue sign the paper in the lubyanka that um steps would be taken to deny them a a famous fellowship at yale the coker fellowship that is a stepping is a is a stepping stone or, you know, diving board into, you know, major legal uh, life in the United States uh, as graduates of Yale Law School. Uh, so this was, they were literally threatened with, a, with, with career harm should they not agree to be part and parcel of a Yale Law School administrative effort to destroy Amy Chua and Jed Rosenfeld, as far, Rubenfeld, as far as we can tell. That, I mean, that's the allegation. Fine. You know what? This is a loss. This is a tort lawsuit. It's not like a criminal finding. Uh, we've read the document. You can read. You can read the uh, at the Washington Free Beacon. You can read the text of the lawsuit. You can read the you know the originating document. Seems open and shut to me. Uh, all Yale is saying is the allegations are baseless, and they have this one uh, professor saying they're just trying to make Yale look bad. Why would they want to make Yale look bad? What's in it for them to make Yale look bad? What the hell is that about? So here's here's the thing, okay? A, don't go to Yale Law School. B, um, like these diversity people, this is literally Stalinism. They are literally trying to get people to go and confess falsely to, you know, that they were witnesses to crimes the crimes themselves are designed to extirpate people who think differently, tenured professors who think differently from the Yale Law School dean and the people the Yale Law School dean has hired. But this is one of the reasons why I love this story is because it exposes something that we've all been observing for a long time, but it makes it quite plain that 
they're borrowing the language of diversity, equity, and inclusion to prosecute professional jealousies. This is a, just an unnavigable labyrinth of professional jealousies that they're all just trying to prosecute. And the, the weapons that they're using are inclusivity and diversity and racial you know, justice and what have you. But they don't care about any of that. All they want to do is stick it to somebody whose job they want. I love it for another reason. Um, to me, it's very exciting because the fact that this lawsuit is happening, the fact that the student who sent out uh, the the invite that was supposedly so offensive has not was did not bow to to the administration's pressure to apologize um, and has and has has come out and spoken with the the free, free beacon and whoever else and explained what's going on there and complained. It's another sign that we're looking at the beginning of the end of this crazy revolution. Um, there are all these irritants popping up in all these institutions that didn't see them coming, that thought that thought the program was going ahead smoothly to crack down, to, to enforce the cultural revolution, and it's not happening that way. And this in this case, the people who are standing up and being irritants are exactly the kind of people that we want to, to, to be doing it. People who have a ton to lose, who are position who are who are at this point primed to be influential powerful people in the new dispensation if they just go along and get along and they're not doing it and i think it's wonderful there's a for people who are interested in how uh, faculty members are kind of forced or or potential faculty members at universities are are forced into this sort of you know ideological trap um, and and won't get jobs if they don't do this. Uh, our friends at the American Enterprise Institute recently issued a fascinating report about DEI statements, diversity, equity, and inclusion statements that are now required when when scholars are applying to jobs on campus to to become professors and how those are used, as you say, Noah, to 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 basically uh, in lieu of actually saying we don't want to hire you because you don't agree with us, they use it. Oh well, they're not really committed enough to diversity, equity, and inclusion, even though these are people who are going to teach math mathematics or physics. So there's a way in which they've they've created a bureaucratic uh, mechanism to enforce what is in fact a base power uh, discriminatory dynamic. hiring practices. Exactly. Jonathan uh, Marks is a professor at Ursinus University, writes for Commentary Magazine, has a piece on the blog about this put, uh, put up a couple of weeks ago called Against uh, Diversity Inclusion Statements, something along those lines. Um, and it's very good. And it, and it demonstrates from inside the profession how this is being used to uh, give people uh, to to sideline people who would otherwise be qualified for jobs before you even get to see their resume, you get you have to hear this this statement, uh, ideological statement of, of, of uh, deference to this affinity group, um, which is discriminatory. I think what, what's interesting here is the the other story that came out in the last week is that it turns out that Yale, I think under Yale now as an institution has one bureaucrat, one administrator for every undergraduate student. I think there are uh, 8,000 undergraduates at Yale. There are 8,000 administrators employed by Yale. Now, there are way more. Law school is a graduate department. They've got a medical school. they got whatever. they got graduate departments and all of that. Um, but as a result, there are these 8,000 administrators, and they will do what administrators will do. And what strikes me as interesting about this is it's a – represents a kind of change in uh, the crisis of academia, which is that um, uh, the, the, the horror now is being inflicted by these weird mediating uh, professions inside academia that are not scholarly. They're not, they, they have a whole professional track. They are the diversity people. They are the gender equity people. They are the Title IX people and all of that. And they are the ones who are making the worst trouble uh, for students and for, um, you know, people who do not hold political views that are necessarily within the mainstream. This is very much <clears throat> a difference and a distinction from the past when, judging from everything we've ever read in literature, you know, the whip hand in universities was held by tenured administrate, tenured professors and the administration <clears throat> and so, you know, great academic novels and all that are always about conflicts between students and teachers and what happens. I mean, the greatest academic satire of the 20th century, The History Man by Malcolm Bradbury, I have it right here, was published in 1975. Um, and it's about a sociologist, at a, a fashionable uh, Marxist sociologist at a 
at a university in England um, who comes, uh, who is sort of like in control of his campus in various ways. And he gins up revolutionary protests in order to keep the administration off kilter. And he's sleeping with everybody he can possibly sleep, every student, every teacher, because he is such a campus power. And um, there is a portrait in here of, a, of, of him and a student, uh, a student who is clearly sort of like a young conservative intellectual and uh, he's a leading sociologist. And um, at some point, uh, there is a conflict in the class in which he he writes a paper uh, that that the class deems a version of uh, bourgeois self-justification. And um, the professor says to him in the class, Professor Howard Kirk, the history man, the focus of the book says, you know, uh, it's an anal paper. Uh, you're, you're, it's an anal repressed paper. You, your model of society is static, uh, and you, it's not sociologically valid. And this is what Bradbury writes. A redness comes up Carmody, that's the student's neck, and reaches his lower face. He says insistently, I think it's a possible point of view, sir. It may be in conservative circles, says Howard. It isn't in sociological ones. Carmody, the student, stares at Howard, the professor. Some of the polite finish begins to come off him. Isn't it debatable, Dr. Kirk, he says? I mean, are you sociology? Yes, says Howard. For the present purpose, I am. There is discomfort in the room. Uh, another student, humanely trying to soften the atmosphere, says, I think you're just a little hung up, Mr. Carmody. I mean, you're too much involved. You're not standing outside society and looking at it. Uh, Carmody looks at the professor. He says, nothing I say could ever please you, could it? You'd certainly have to try harder than you do, says Howard, the professor. I see, says Carmody. Do I have to agree with you, Dr. Kirk? Do I have to vote the way you do and march down the street with you and sign your petitions and hit po policemen on your demos before I can pass your course? There is a pause in the class, a tiny and easy movement of furniture. Then Howard says, it's not required, George, but it might help you see some of the problems inside this society you keep sentimentalizing about. Um, I think, George, says another student, the trouble is you don't have a conflict model of society. Don't let him off the hook, says the professor. There's a lot more missing than that. All of sociology and all of humanity as well. The student pushes his paper savagely back into a shiny briefcase and says, of course all you have is a conflict model. Everyone's interest conflicts with everyone else's, but better not conflict with Dr. Kirk. Oh, no, it's not a consensus model for his classes, all right? I mean, we're democratic and we vote, but no dirty old conservative standpoints here. So sociology is revolutionary, and we'd better agree. And the professor says, I don't think you're in a state to understand anything that's being said to you. Do what you like, says Carmody. I've had enough. He gets off his chair, kneels on his floor, picking up his pile of books. His hurt, angry face looks up at Howard as he does this. Then he stands, captures his briefcase with his fingers, and walks out of the circle towards the door. So this is 1975. This is really an extraordinary book, and I, you can read it on Kindle. I, got, I, I downloaded it on Kindle this morning to read from it. But what's interesting is that this is a classic conflict. It's a tenured professor and a student having a conflict in a classroom about texts and it, it gets crazier the book gets crazier than this but uh this guy uh eldine at uh, at yale is not a is not a teacher right the title nine people who, who who summon up these kangaroo courts and these star chambers they're not teachers they're, they're not fact, educated often, often called officers that, right. that non-faculty administrators yeah so and the ballooning of non-faculty administrators is the one of, if not the singular cause of the inflated cost of higher education. Right. It's gone so up a, by like 500% over right. a decade. Right. So A, it's the increased cost. And B, it's the creation of these people at universities whose purpose has absolutely nothing to do with the purpose of a university, which is the furtherance of scholarship, the molding of young minds, the creation of new leaders and new scholars, it is the empower. It is it is a world, a hundreds of billions of dollars of income and donations, in which these people are parasitically trying to gain and maintain and lever their own power. It's a power game, and that's what the Yale stuff reveals. 
And uh, Yale Law School is obviously particularly egregious. And like I say, you should you would be crazy if you wanted to go there, if you're in my, you know, within my earshot. But I mean, that's just a version of, that's just one version of the world uh, that is everywhere. And that, I, I mean, I hope, Abe, you're right. I hope that this is, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing the, the, the fire. But I, I think there's a lot more trouble to come. I only said the beginning of the right. End. That's the, this the is very not beginning. even the end. This is not, this is the end of the beginning, or this is the beginning of the beginning. Um, so look, uh, let's talk about Moinkbox. Uh, haven't talked to you about it for a couple of weeks. It delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon direct to your door, helping farm family farms become financially independent outside of big agriculture. Their animals are raised outdoors, their fish swim wild in the ocean, and moink meat is free of antibiotics, hormones, sugar, and all the other junk you find prepackaged in the meat aisle. Sign up at moinkbox.com slash commentary to get a year of ground beef for free, and then pick up what meats you want delivered with your first box. Change what you get each month. Cancel any time. Moink was founded by an eighth-generation farmer who was featured on Shark Tank. Host Kevin O'Leary said it's the best bacon he's ever tasted. And Jamie Simonoff, creator of the Ring Video Doorbell, invested in Moink. Join the Moink movement today. Go to moinkbox.com slash commentary right now. And listeners to the show get free ground beef for a year. That's one year of the best ground beef you'll ever taste, but for a limited time. Spelled M-O-I-N-K, box dot com slash commentary that's moinkbox.com slash commentary i just want to repeat that book that i was reading from that is the history man by malcolm bradbury so uh, i just want to close briefly it was something that irritates me to circle all the way back to the the media conversation that we opened up with that just came across my transom reuters news service wire service advances this story as congress advances democrats tax plans the wealthy eye loopholes which is really a dog bites man or story. I mean, it's just that's interest group seeks own interest, like really just striking. The only reason to publish anything like that is to irritate the right people and get engagement on social media. But it is captioned as it is that the art, the photo that graces the story is a guy wearing a T-shirt that says tax the rich. And the photo caption is the following. A demonstrator wears a tax the rich T-shirt during a national day of resistance to demand a safe, scientific, racially just, and fully funded approach to reopening schools during the coronavirus outbreak. What the hell does that have to do with anything? What does that have to do with the tax code? What does that have to do with taxing the rich? The loopholes, the whole premise of the story has nothing to do with the art you chose here. It's just to drive engagement on a very narrow, insular website dominated by neurotics. You're you're loving, you're, you're, what? Twitter is dominated by neurotics? Yes. Is that what you're saying? Included. Yeah. That's a gentle diagnosis. Well. <laughs> it's a very gentle diagnosis for what Twitter is. It's more like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's the, the, clinical, the clinical interpretation of the normal Twitter user would be a very, very interesting one. Oh, Pew, Re- have you, did you see the Pew Research Center study yesterday? Pew does occasional studies of, of Twitter, which is valuable, again, because it's a very narrow audience, but a very influential audience, and they produced the the following. Again, I'm going to quote, quote, although they produce the vast majority of content, highly active tweeters produce relatively few original tweets and receive little engagement from the broader Twitter audience. Posts from this group also receive little engagement from other users in the form of likes and retweets. Ice cold, Pew. So what does that tell you? That tells you that people are just screaming. They're just screaming into the void. Right. They're tweeting 500 times a day and nobody is paying attention. If, if you know, it's like, what is that? If a tweet falls in the forest and nobody hears it, does it make a sound? It does because it's the only people paying attention are in actual news media and they amplify the sound. Right. And they measure volume. They measure volume. And that's, that's one of the few metrics that you can gauge to see if you're producing a product that people like. Well, um, and yet here we are like it, it, we were we were already like five or six years ago thinking something was going to replace Twitter because it was time for something to replace Twitter and Facebook. Right. And, and this is part of the the weird slowdown in our in our in our technological progress in the world is that is that the social media companies have not been supplanted the way, you know, the Blackberry was supplanted by the iPhone or the, you know, whatever. Like it's it's odd. Well, TikTok. Facebook, tick- TikTok has has okay, TikTok, come in right. for the young. Like, in you remember Clubhouse? That didn't work. Yeah. That was like there was like eight, there was like two months of Clubhouse. Oh my God! We it's like talking Twitter. 
And people were like, who wants talking Twitter? Like, I, you know. But I think I've told you this story that I was, I, I, I should never be the guy who comments on this because in 2004, my, my wife brought home this, uh, she was working for a, a TV show and, and, um, and uh, the cast often got promotional. People were always trying to get them to use things to promote them. And somebody brought her this Samsung device. I was like, could you get the cast to use this? And it was a flip phone that had a camera. And you took a picture with it. It was a terrible picture. And I said to her, who would want a phone with a camera? Like, look, first of all, it'll take forever for the for the picture to, you know, travel. It's like, well, it'd be so slow, and then the picture isn't any good. Nobody is going to want a phone with a camera, I said. So don't take my investing advice. That's <laughs> all I have to say. I just do think that we were, we, we were sort of due for, like, some innovation that was going to supplant Twitter, and it hasn't happened. Substack. I don't know. Anyway, with that, we will, uh, we will... We will say adieu until tomorrow for Abe, Christina, Noah, and John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.